This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT11. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Good Fight, The Tom Hartman Program, Moyers and Company, Counterspin, The Majority Report, The Bugle, The Progressive Magazine, and The Young Turks. And a hopeful reminder that at the end of Orwell's 1984, the protagonist wins the battle by ultimately realizing that he loves Big Brother. Cripes. I think that email is lost forever. Say, what's wrong? Oh, hello there. Well, I'm down in the dumps. I pressed the wrong key, and now I think my personal data is permanently gone. Well, Sue, I've got some news that will cheer you up. I happen to know that all of your personal data is safe and sound, indexed and stored in one of the most extensive databases ever created. Wow, what an amazing service. Who are you, anyway? And how do you know my name? I'm from NSA Backup. We know everyone's name. NSA Backup? What's that? If you trust other backup companies with your data, a million things could go wrong. You could lose your password. You could forget to run your backup program. But at NSA Backup, there are no passwords and there is no program. We just automatically back up all of your data from all sources all of the time. Well, some of my data was on my computer, but some was on my phone. Not to worry. With NSA Backup, your phone is our phone. In fact, anything you or anyone you meet says or does within 30 feet of an electronic sensor is automatically stored and indexed for all time. Wow. Say, how much does this NSA Backup cost? Well, our precise budget is classified, but the good news is that you've already paid for it through your tax dollars. So how do I retrieve my data? You don't have to. Our team here at NSA Backup regularly reviews your data for you. And if we find anything threatening, we'll make sure that you and your family are immediately taken care of. But that's not what NSA Backup. Always on, always watching. Like a god. President of Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, spoke this morning at the United Nations. She delivered a powerful indictment of spying by the NSA on behalf of the United States. She said, and I quote, Without respect for a nation's sovereignty, there is no basis for proper relations among nations. She added, Brazil knows how to protect itself, and Brazil does not provide shelter to terrorist groups. We are a democratic country. The Brazilian president was so outraged at the American spine, both on her country and on her personal emails and her personal life, that she canceled a state dinner with President Obama. And while most Americans see this as a rift between Brazil and the United States over the issue of spying, our spying on Brazil, President Rousseff highlighted the most important point of all elsewhere in her speech this morning. She said, and I quote, 
without the right of privacy, there is no real freedom of speech or freedom of opinion. And so there is no actual democracy. End of quote. President of Brazil. This is not just true of international relations. It's also true here inside the United States. I mean, back before the Kennedy administration largely put an end to it, J. Edgar Hoover was famous, infamous, in political circles here in D.C. for his spying on and blackmailing both American politicians and activists, like, for example, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. He even sent King tapes of an extramarital affair and suggested that King should consider committing suicide. And that was a shameful period in American history. And most Americans think it's behind us. But the NSA and other intelligence agencies and even local police departments have put the practice of spying on average citizens in America on steroids. This is not good. As Brazil's president points out, without privacy, there can be no democracy. Democracy requires opposing voices. It requires a certain level of reasonable political conflict. And it requires that government misdeeds be exposed. And that can only be done when whistleblowers and people committing acts of journalism do so, can do so, without being spied upon. And, and in fact, I think a larger problem here is that well over half, some estimates run as high as 70% of the NSA's budget, has been outsourced to private corporations. These private corporations maintain an army of lobbyists here in Washington, D.C., who are constantly pushing for more spying and thus more money for their clients. So with the privatization of intelligence operations, the normal system of checks and balances that would keep governments snooping under control has broken down. We need a new church commission to investigate the nature and scope of our government's spying, both on us and on people like President Rousseff of Brazil, our allies. But even more than that, we need to go back to the advice that President Dwight Eisenhower gave us as he left the presidency in 1961. Eisenhower warned about the rise of a military-industrial complex suggesting that private forces might, in their search for profits, override the protective mechanisms that keep government answerable to its people. That military-industrial complex has become the military-industrial spying private prison complex. And it is far greater a threat to democracy than probably was even envisioned by Eisenhower. In American democracy, in our republic, our government is the protector of the commons. It is of, by, and for we the people, and therefore it must be answerable to we the people. When the functions of government are privatized, all of that breaks down, and our government then becomes answerable to profit, which is not the idea of government. So we need to reestablish this very bright dividing line between government functions on the one hand and corporate functions on the other, between the public space and the private space. Government should be doing spying, not private corporations. Government should be running prisons, not private corporations. Government should not be making cars that should be private corporations or making clothes or selling toothbrushes. I mean, that's all private corporations. 
and a critically important place to start that whole process is by ending the privatization within our national investigative and spying agencies. Get these spy corporations out of the business. Squarespace is what's known as a content management system. You build a website on it, and it manages your content for you. It's pretty simple. And I was talking to a web developer friend of mine about content management systems recently, and I asked him, I was like, let me see if I can understand this. And I told him a story about how when I was in high school, I converted my whole music collection to those burned CDRs. And when I did, I created playlists on each CD and, and you know customized them just the way I wanted. And at the same time, my dad did sort of the same thing, converted all of his music to CDs, but he didn't customize them. He just created the albums exactly as they had come from the publisher. And I thought, well, that's kind of a waste. If you're going to do the work of converting to all these CDs, you might as well mix up your songs, make them just how you like. And he said, no, it's just, you know, this is how I like it. And I learned my lesson when it was time to convert all those CDs back to the computer after the MP3 player had been invented. And all of my dad's CDs went on the computer Instantly and easily, the computer recognized what they were, filled in all the track and artist names, whereas mine, the computer didn't know what it was, and I had to do all of that manually again. I said, is that basically the difference between a content management system and you know one of those free sites or whatever where you can customize anything you want, but then you end up really screwing yourself in the end? He said, yeah, no, that's that's basically it. You know, it's it's sort of like buying an old Volkswagen. It's kind of cheap and sounds like a good idea in, in the beginning, but the costs in both time and maintenance really catch up with you after a while. And so that's why I really like Squarespace. It fits in with the philosophy that I now hold based on the lessons that I learned the hard way, that if you can tap into a really well-designed system and use it the way it's intended, then you can be really happy in the near term and the long run. So you can try the service for free for 14 days, and when you are ready to sign up, the plans start at only 8 bucks a month, so it's way less than buying an old Volkswagen anyways. And then on top of that, you can use the special offer code LEFT11, that's L-E-F-T, and the number 11 to get 10% off your purchase, and that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. So again, the offer code is LEFT11, you get 10% off at Squarespace, where you get everything you need to create an exceptional website. Take a look at this perfect headline for the age of surveillance. No morsel, too minuscule for all-consuming NSA. There it's set above a chilling account by New York Times reporter Scott Shane of how spying by the National Security Agency has spread like a contagious virus. And there's more. Another Times article reports that the CIA has been paying AT&T more than $10 million a year for access to its telephone records. Gives new meaning to the phone company's old slogan, reach out and touch someone. True, it's a dangerous world out there and someone has to keep an eye on it. But if you think that the only targets of illicit snooping are suspected terrorists, foreign dignitaries, and journalists too close to the truth, guess again. Every one of us is under the omniscient magnifying glass of government and corporate spies. Yes, remember the corporations, their data banks cover every sector of American society, aimed, as the forward to a new book notes, at school children and mothers of school children, at church congregations, credit card members, and 
Facebook friends, at everybody and anybody at work or at play with the tracking device otherwise known as a cell phone. How do we respond to this smog of surveillance? Well, start by reading this book, Spying on Democracy, Government Surveillance, Corporate Power, and Public Resistance by Heidi Bogosian. She's executive director of the National Lawyers Guild. That's a progressive legal organization started almost 80 years ago as an alternative to the more establishment American Bar Association. She's collected story after story of how innocent lives are turned upside down. Even her own group has been subjected to surveillance and eavesdropping. Howdy, Bogosian. Welcome. It's an honor to be here. How do you deal personally with the possibility that you might be uh, tracked, tapped, or monitored? When you write an email, when you're on the telephone, uh, certain privileged information, especially uh, between clients and attorneys or about a client with a reporter, for example, um, one must assume that is being monitored now. And we knew that years ago under the Bush administration with the warrantless wiretapping program when many organizations actually filed lawsuits saying that right. they suspected their communications were being monitored and that really changes the relationship and um, makes an organization have to travel long distances to have private communications in person with clients. You can't do as much on email or on the phone. So it's not a matter of your saying, as so many people are, well, if I'm not doing anything wrong, why should I care if anyone's watching? You've heard that, haven't of you? Of course. I think that's a very simplistic answer because when one is under constant surveillance, uh, be it from a surveillance camera uh, on a city block, and we have so many here in New York, uh, to the possibility that internet communications are being monitored, it necessarily alters how you communicate. It makes us mm. tamp down things that we might say, and I think uh, attempt to conform more to the greater corporate surveillance state. Whether or not we realize that, we may not engage in the kind of robust dialogue with our friends or our colleagues. We may not meet at public assemblies because it's become really uh, under the watchful eye and wanting to maintain the status quo of big business. You say in your book that we've become a surveillance state, a government-corporate partnership that makes a mockery of civil liberties. Talk about that partnership. There's a revolving door, really, between the Pentagon and private business. For example, I think it's 70% of retired three- and four-star generals uh, then take jobs in the private sector as consultants. Uh, advising the government through work with companies such as Raytheon uh, and others about policy uh, and I think that's a conflict of interest but more importantly CEOs from many of the big uh, businesses like Boeing, Raytheon advise the president on matters of technology and national security and they're they're conflicted out because their profit motive really is the duty that they have, whereas the government officials have a duty to uphold the Constitution. I don't think that having 70% of our national intelligence conducted by private business uh, is a way to ensure that our civil liberties are really protected. You write in here that from the moment you wake up, your everyday activities are routinely subjected to surveillance. Do you think everyday Americans know that? 
They didn't a few months ago. Uh, I think that with the Snowden revelations and the Guardian coming forth, uh, we have a greater sense of the extent to which our communications are monitored. Uh, in fact, it seems not to be the exception, but rather the rule. Yeah, Literally what, everything is gathered. It's what you call a staggeringly comprehensive network. Tracks where we go, how long we stay, and what we browse, read, buy, and say. That's pretty exhaustive. It's exhaustive, and I think when the government says, for example, that metadata uh, that doesn't collect the contents of our communications uh, is an acceptable thing to collect, you have to realize that associations can be very easily garnered and tracked. What's metadata? Metadata shows, for example, that I called you on a Friday night. It doesn't say what we discussed, but it says that we talked. So that if I called a physician, say at a cancer clinic several times, uh, the government might surmise that I have cancer. Or if I engage in a certain political activity over a period of time, it allows them to develop a profile even though they don't know exactly what we discussed. What would they want that for? Well. Retailers want that information because they want to develop profiles about our purchasing and spending habits. We have groups such as Axiom, which is a data aggregator that really has quite complete profiles on many of us in this country. That's a market research firm, right? It's a market research firm, and they very cleverly recently came out with a website called About the Data that allows you to go on and check what information they have about you and to correct it therefore giving them actually more accurate information if you were to do that. Where do they get that data? They get the information from a number of public sources, uh, but they also go to retailers and may purchase it from, say, JCPenney, who has tracked what you've purchased from them mm. over the last year. And then they sell it to third-party companies, including the U.S. government. The problem being, of course, that they need to simplify profiles of us. They may categorize us as sort of an up-and-coming 20-year-old interested in uh, maybe starting a family or you're about to retire. But they also put in information about your political activities, your personal interests, uh, health interests, things that we may not want shared. This is the company I think Natasha Singer wrote about in the New York Times and she said that Axiom peers deeper into American life than the FBI or the IRS. Quote, if you are an American adult, the odds are that it knows things like your age, race, sex, weight, height, marital status, education level, politics, buying habits, household health worries, vacation dreams, and so on. Why does our government contract with a market researcher? Well, the government is constricted by the Fourth Amendment's uh, provision that it may not engage in unreasonable searches and seizures. But businesses don't have those same constraints, so they can collect information about us that the government lawfully is not allowed to do. So you have said in here that data mining is the gold standard for spying on democracy now. Explain that. Well, as we've become an increasingly consumerized nation and reliant on the Internet, uh, you'll know that when you do a search for example, for a pair of shoes. You're going to be bombarded on the internet yeah. with other shoes um, from different companies. And I think that it's become hugely profitable for these organizations such as Axiom and others because they really 
keep this information for years on end. We don't know exactly what they do with it, but we do know that they profit handsomely from it. And that really, information in this country, personal information, is the new commodity. Sixty Minutes is a show known for hard-hitting interviews, or maybe they were at one time. If you watched the October 27th broadcast, you saw something else. Mike Morell, who recently retired from the CIA, gave his first ever TV interview. He was at the agency from the 9/11 attacks through torture scandals, the Iraq intelligence debacle, and the use of drones. So plenty to talk about. But correspondent John Miller explained why Morell was talking. Mike Morell was deputy director of the CIA and gave us the only television interview he's ever done. He spoke to us largely because he believes the very nature of the spy business keeps successes in the shadows, but often pushes failure into the bright lights. That gave viewers a sense of what would come next. Morell said NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden betrayed his country. Miller, the journalist, seemed to concur. Morell admitted that torture is bad, but then they moved on to discussing the precision of the drone war. Morell said he wished the Iraq WMD intelligence had been scrubbed more thoroughly, but said not to worry, that kind of thing wouldn't happen again. On almost every issue, one could imagine some tough follow-up questions, but you'd have to keep imagining because they were never asked. Why not? Well, it might have something to do with the fact that just a few years ago, Miller had a very different job. He worked in media relations for the FBI. So perhaps Morell went to Miller in 60 Minutes for his first ever TV interview because he knew what he was going to get—a segment that looked a lot like CIA PR. Do you think that Americans are largely in the dark、uh, about what we're talking about, or do you think they now take it for granted and are complacent about it because what they're doing fits their convenience? Certainly, generations that have been brought up on the internet and taught to type on a keyboard at the same time that they learn to read have a different notion of privacy, and、uh, are willing, even、uh, as children who may not. Uh, know it to give over personal information. For example, when they sign on to a Walt Disney site or even a Coca-Cola site, and along with that comes a kind of trust. I think、uh, corporations are so much a part of our daily lives.、Uh, I would argue for the worse, but、uh, they market themselves as our friends, and then the close partnership they enjoy with the government. Blurs traditional lines of what government functions have been, and notions of privacy. So I think that most people who grew up on the internet may not be aware of 
traditional notions of privacy and are willing, as you say, for the, for the convenience that it offers us uh, and the, I think, appearance of ease of friendship and communication. But I think that we do need to take a step back and realize that protections haven't been put in place uh, along with the fast pace that technology has really sped ahead. Some people will say, well, I hear what uh, Heidi Boghossian is saying, and I'm as concerned as she is about the uh, government use of data. But I'm not really concerned when she talks about the business, uh, the corporate consequences of this, because I'm buying these things knowingly. I probably assume that somebody is going to be using this data to, 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 to uh, profile me and, and, and track me. And I, I, we think there should be a distinction between our fear or concern about government uh, surveillance and corporate or business surveillance. Now, respond to that challenge. People need to know that for all intents and purposes, the distinction right now between government and the corporate world is virtually nil. They are hand-in-hand -hand working to gather information about Americans as well as people across the globe to really be in a race uh, to collect more information than any other country can because I think in their eyes having this information, storing it and be, being able to access it for years on end is, is a symbol of power and control so that you can't really make that distinction anymore between big business and government. But, but government is looking, is it not, for that uh, needle in the haystack, that potential terrorist that people want to stop before the terrorist strikes this country. And with the corporations and the business, aren't they looking for the person to whom they can market something? It helps me make my way through a busy life of being able to buy online. And if I have to give up a little information about myself, I, that's okay. And that's what they're telling us. And of course, that is part of it. But they're also looking to quiet those individuals who may be critical of corporate policies. And remembering how much corporations really factor into our daily lives, that should be of concern. Uh, many corporations have their own intelligence sections, for example, uh, so that they may have a unit that spies on activists. Animal rights and environmental activists are one of the prime targets because the FBI has labeled them a top domestic terrorism threat. So that if you go to a protest and you're an animal rights activist, you can expect that you're being tracked in one way or another. They now identify what they call the anarchist threat. Yeah. And that's basically anyone who uh, I think uh, may be continuously critical of, of government and corporate policies, who speaks out and who isn't intimidated by corporations. So they spend vast amounts of money to track these individuals. So this is why you write that corporations no longer spy merely to protect or steal trade secrets. In 2004, the Department of Homeland Security created what are called fusion centers, allegedly to better uh, streamline the coordination between local law enforcement, federal law enforcement, and businesses so that these some 75 centers across the country work hand-in-hand -hand with businesses, gathering information uh, about local threat assessments, including uh, anarchist and so-called activist threat assessments. We saw that with the Occupy movement, where the Department of Homeland Security worked with financial uh, businesses and banks to let them know that there would be protests in their municipalities all around the country well before the protests started. But you say this has a fallout 
on, on dissent and uh, truth-telling? When you are afraid to go, for example, to a mass assembly because you know that law enforcement will be there in riot gear with so-called less lethal munitions, when you know that corporations have done their research, gathered dossiers on you, may have their own private security guards, as they do now at most protests, uh, it makes people who maybe have never gone to a protest before, who want to express a view on something, afraid of that. I think that's very uh, damaging to the notion of democracy because the streets, the public parks, which are now increasingly uh, corporatized in many urban areas, uh, don't belong to us as a people anymore. They belong to corporations. And if we're afraid to go there and congregate, uh, it's a sad testament to where we are. One of the surveillance cameras down at the side of Occupy Wall Street is still there right. a couple of years later. So what do you think is happening to us as a, as, a, as, a, as a free and democratic people? I think that we've been understandably enticed by all the exciting forms of technology. And I think that, of course, there are many, many wonderful uses of technology that we should harness for the appropriate reasons. I just think that our laws and our social conscience has not kept a step with those developments, that we need to take a breath and say, where are we? What do we value? Uh, what do we want to recapture in terms of our rights as Americans and our constitutional protections? And how can we balance the positive gains of technology with privacy and the laws of the land? You say we need more troublemakers to bring us to our senses. Troublemakers. That was a quote from a judge in New York over an Occupy Wall Street case. And the judge said that Occupy... Uh, in effect had shown a light on these so-called troublemakers. The police department called them troublemakers. And he said that they really provide an invaluable service in terms of reminding us what's important uh, in our country. You would consider Edward Snowden a troublemaker, right? A troublemaker and a true hero and patriot. Why? Working as he did for a private corporation handling sensitive information, and being told, basically, that there was no problem, there was nothing he could do. He then uh, took matters into his own hands, knowing that he would probably face imprisonment for the rest of his life. Uh, and I think that doing that, because he saw something wrong, contrary to the values, um, and contrary, really, to, I think, why he went into his work, uh, make him the ultimate hero because he sacrificed his life to uphold uh, the nation's values, democracy. Could you have done that? I would like to think I'd be brave enough to do that. Uh, I'm cautious in some ways because I am a lawyer and I know I have taken an oath to uphold the law. Uh, I would like to think that I could have done that. I'm not, not sure. I really like your last chapter, which is called Custodians of Democracy. Who are the custodians of democracy? The custodians of democracy are the ordinary people that make up this country and make us so special. They believe that we can be a thriving democracy and that we do not have to cede our lives and our autonomy uh, to multinational corporations, who I think have really robbed us uh, of some of the um, 
the privileges that we've been so fortunate to have over the history of this nation. And they're not afraid to stand up to leaders. They're not afraid to take action that may get them in trouble, get them expelled from a school, for example, or even arrested. They take to the streets, they speak out, and they lead by example, by doing something that unfortunately uh, has required a great deal of bravery in what should really be uh, the ordinary way we conduct our lives. Well, one way to become a custodian of democracy is to read Spying on Democracy, Government Surveillance, Corporate Power, and Public Resistance. It's coming from the field that this ain't exactly real, or it's real, but it ain't exactly there. From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay, democracy is coming. NSA, according to a report in Al Jazeera America, which they got after uh, filing uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, got documents that the NSA used to basically build its public relations uh, game, its public relations strategy to defend the program. And they said that they needed to, quote, to push 9-11 as a key soundbite to justify surveillance. This is the document that Al Jazeera reported on. Under the subheading, quote, soundbites that resonate, the document suggests that statements such as, quote, I much prefer to be here today explaining these programs than explaining another 9-11 event that we were not able to prevent. NSA head General Keith Alexander, of course going to be departing, used a slightly different version of that statement when he testified before Congress on June 8th in defense of the agency's surveillance. It is important that, uh, it is important to this, it is much more important for this country that we defend this nation and take the beatings than we give up on a program result that would result in this nation being attacked. Critics have noted the tendency of senior U.S. politicians and security officials to use the fear of attacks like the one that killed almost 3,000 Americans to justify policies ranging from increased defense spending to the invasion of Iraq. And this is absolutely right. That what began as this, again, horrible terrorist attack, serious security consequences, we did need to have a rethink and we did need to adjust some policies. It is an actual threat. Everything has been thrown under this rubric from a disastrous invasion of Iraq to stupid defense projects to this massive NSA apparatus that they would want to push regardless. And what does this do? This threatens civil liberties, this bloats budgets, this hurts our competitive standing, it disrupts diplomatic relations, and it also leads to a cry-wolf syndrome. Because you're getting to a point a little bit after a decade after 9-11 where it's become almost – it's been so cynically deployed in so many cynical contexts that we don't take it seriously anymore. We do. I mean it's not just some right-wing nonsense. There was a day where this serious terrorist group flew planes into buildings and murdered almost 3,000 people. 
and they attacked the coal and they they attacked other targets they attacked embassies they continue to attack in different places and this is an actual situation it's just that it's an actual situation that requires a totally different mentality a totally different strategy nothing on the scale that we've deployed we've deployed we've turned the world into a surveillance and battlefield now we have alliances with warlords in Somalia that have nothing to do with this now we're tapping Dilma Rousseff's phone we're listening to Angela Merkel and these guys have the temerity to come out every day and use this event which was a real event it's not a joke it's not a caricature it's not a talking point it is a national trauma it is a real thing and they use it and the most cynical methods imaginable, and then they have the audacity to turn around and say that Edward Snowden's threatening our security. You threaten the security when you cheapen 9-11. And you threaten security when you take these vast overreaches and you cannot explain them fully in a democratic forum. Now, I think there are people who work at all these agencies who have very good intentions, and some of them are doing very important work, and I don't discount that for a second. But structurally, things are vastly dysfunctional and out of balance, and all you get is spin. And that's the disrespect to 9-11. That's what undermines our security. Nothing Edward Snowden, who's freezing it out in Moscow, trying to keep out of a brig, just for telling us this stuff. He's done a great service. I almost feel alive and I think I'll survive one question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Spying update! Everybody snoops! <laughs> it's got to the point now. Andy, where if you live anywhere in the world and the NSA is not monitoring your phone and emails, you should probably feel deeply hurt, or <laughs> at the very least, you should check to see that you're still alive. Uh, the reason uh, we're still finding out about this is that Edward Snowden has been continually leaking away like a BP oil rig, <laughs> constantly with significant consequences and with no clear way to stop it, short of shoving a cork in the USB drive of his laptop. Uh, the latest revelations... Uh, showed that the NSA has been monitoring the phone calls of 35 world leaders, including Germany's Angela Merkel, uh, the news of which is likely to have pissed off at least 35 people, <laughs> including Germany's Angela Merkel. <laughs> Although, I will say, Andy, monitoring that last one, I don't really have a problem with. 
I still think that monitoring the German leader, however dubiously, is significantly safer than not monitoring a German leader. And I think deep down, even though she's justifiably upset about this, Andy, she can probably understand that. Uh, this is an outrage. What gives this foreign agencies a right to tap on my personal phone? I cannot possibly let this... Well, yes, we did do that. We did do it, yes. I mean, it was a long time ago, but, well, when you put it like that, it was, I guess, less than 100 years ago. Okay, in your position, I would probably do the same thing. Probably. Well, this is a very valid point, John. A German newspaper described the uh, monitoring mm -hmm. of Mer Merkel's mobile phone as, quotes, the greatest conceivable affront. <laughs> to which America presumably replied, come on, guys, you of all people should be able to see this in some kind of historical context. <laughs> on the affront scale, sure, it's not exactly not an affront, but it's also not starting a war on a front and then another front. <laughs> Nothing about this. It's particularly surprising. I think everyone probably assumed that every country is trying to do stuff like this, and the surprise is not so much that the US was successful, but that the president at least claims he didn't know anything about it. Now, that seems bad in almost every possible way that you can explain <laughs> it. It's bad if he signed off on it and has now been caught, and it's also bad if he didn't sign off on it and has now been caught not knowing about it. The president either comes out of this looking shady or incompetent, and he's got a two-item menu of options in response to this. He's either going to have to eat an entire humble pie or an entire humiliation omelette, and neither is going to be particularly easy to swallow. I guess the defence for America is uh, to say something like, come on, it's nothing that George Orwell hadn't already made up in a novel more than 60 years ago. And also, the old classic, no smoke without fire defence. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess given the existence of smokeless fuels, you do also need to check everywhere there isn't smoke, as well as where there is smoke, just to see whether or not there might be a fire there that is burning with an invisible flame, as some fires do. So I think, I mean, that is America's defence on. You just cannot, you cannot be too careful. And also, America as a Christian country would say, well, if Jesus had only surveillance Judas Iscariot properly, he'd still be alive today. Oh, that is a good point. Yep. Wow, that is a persuasive argument, Andy. Yep. Now, the implication is that the president went nearly five years without knowing that his own spies were bugging the phones of world leaders. Uh, uh, officials stated that the NSA has, and I quote, so many eavesdropping operations underway that it wouldn't have been practical to brief him on all of them. <laughs> well, that is the opposite of reassuring, Andy. <laughs> Listen, if we were going to start telling him everything we're doing that he might not be comfortable with, we'd be in the Oval Office all week. <laughs> I haven't got time for that. My daughter has a softball game on Thursday, and he hasn't got time for that either. He's busy. Malia's got the flu. I know that for sure, because I've been listening to his phone calls. <laughs> the, the White House moved quickly to deny that it was actively monitoring Merkel's phone. The White House spokesman, Jay Carney, a man who has one of the worst jobs in the world, <laughs> said, the president assured the chancellor that the United States is not monitoring and will not monitor the communication of the chancellor. Okay. Okay, that's good. I mean, that's, that's two out of three. <laughs> and he does seem to be missing a crucial tense there. Is not monitoring good, will not better. <laughs> what about did not? What about that? Because that's like being asked in a murder trial, did you kill that woman? And saying, put it this way, I am not killing her now, and I will not kill her in the future. <laughs> I think that answers your question. I'm a free to go now. The scale of it is extraordinary, John. Uh, there's, uh, I read that the NSA monitored 60 million Spanish phone calls in a month. Mm -hmm. That is 2 million phone calls a day. 
That is half a million phone calls per working hour in Spain, John. That is. <laughs> that just seems. That seems too many. Too many. It is. It is amazing. There was a selection of stories. The the Merkel, uh, the uh, Angela Merkel story was broken by the German newspaper Der Spiegel, which is German for the Spiegel. <laughs> uh, they reported. Uh, that from back in 2002, Merkel's calls were either recorded or monitored by NSA officials. Uh, and, I mean, how would the president not have been aware of that, Andy? <laughs> Surely at some point he must have asked if they had any information on how Germany might be about to vote in the UN resolution, and his advice had said, not sure, but Merkel's definitely ordering a pizza right now, so <laughs> take that into account. And he's clearly said, OK, that seems like a very personal piece of information, gathered in a way that I have absolutely no interest in uncovering. And... <laughs> As you say, it didn't stop there. The French newspaper Le Monde, which is French for The Monde, <laughs> uh, ran a story that the US government had monitored millions of phone calls in France, and the next day, El Mundo, the Spanish paper <laughs> meaning The Mundo, <laughs> re reported, as you say, that the NSA tracked tens of millions of phone calls, texts, and emails of Spanish citizens, all of which apparently went quiet for four hours in the middle of the day. I'm agreeing with you, Andy. <laughs> I'm saying the Spanish like to nap. <laughs> They love a snooze, Andy, almost as much as they love being chased by bulls. In fact, when they're being chased by bulls, they're thinking about snoozing. And when they're snoozing, Andy, they're dreaming about being chased by bulls. That's just a fact. That's a Spain fact, Andy. You give them a red blanket and they'll be torn about whether to wave it at a bull or curl up underneath it. Spain fact. Bad. For those of you who've not read any Hemingway, that's basically his entire oeuvre summed up. <laughs> the editorial... Uh, in El Mundo, the Mundo, said, um, the massive spying on Spanish citizens requires a strong response from the authorities. Uh, the foreign ministry should raise a formal complaint. Mariano Rajoy should join France and Germany in their initiatives. And as early as Monday, the public prosecu prosecutor should denounce the NSA for violation of the privacy of millions of Spaniards, which is punishable by up to four years in prison under Article 197 of the Penal Code. So, hold on, Andy. <laughs> Is Spain threatening to put the entire population of the United States in jail for four years? I'm not going, Andy. I can't sleep that much during the day. I feel sluggish. I feel sluggish, Andy, if I nap that hard. <laughs> um, die Zeit, a German newspaper, die Zeit, of course, means de uh, lingering sense of national guilt, uh, said <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> It's high time for Obama to honour his promise of transparency. When you uh -huh. say high time, I would say arguably it is too late for him to honour that promise of transparency, John. That would be like a waiter in a restaurant honouring his promise of a glass of house white after first serving a glass of house bleach. It just seems too little, <laughs> too late. And uh, another, <laughs> this was another glorious quote from uh, the uh, German press. Uh, the Angela Mer Merkel's phone, it said... Her mobile phone is her control centre, which does sound eerie like a line from a German love poem. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the tens of millions of phone calls and emails monitored in Spain would, uh, were just between December 2012 and January 2013, with the monitoring apparently peaking on the 11th of December. What the f*** were they trying to find out, Andy? <laughs> Were they monitoring what Spanish children were going to be getting for Christmas? Did they just want to make absolutely sure that Santa Claus wasn't giving little Pedro some depleted uranium? <laughs> now, inter a side note to these uh, revelations was that, interestingly, traditionally, the US and four other countries, known as the Five Eyes, 
don't spy on each other. The Five Eyes group are the US, the UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. First, there's no way that everyone on that list doesn't spy on each other anyway. There's no way. <laughs> but secondly, and much more importantly, how the f*** did New Zealand get on that <laughs> there, Andy? Were they just thinking, look, New Zealand is mainly sheep, hobbits and elite rugby players anyway. <laughs> we know what they're up to. It's not just the US which has been caught bug-handed in the last uh, few weeks. Russia apparently gave out bugged goodie bags <laughs> at the recent G20 summit in St. Petersburg. Classic. They reportedly, they reportedly gave out free zip drives with software on them, which was designed to download the user's information and send it to intelligence agents at the Kremlin. Now, here's the thing about that, Andy. If you get given a free zip drive from Vladimir Putin and you put it in your computer, you are a f***ing idiot. <laughs> That's like being given a headache pill from Silvio Berlusconi. Don't put it anywhere near your mouth. There's likely to be a lot more to it than meets the eye. Apparently, Putin said in an interview recently that Edward Snowden, of course, who started all of this, that Edward Snowden himself could feel safe in Russia... Although he then said that he found him a strange guy. Oh, <laughs> why could that be a wonder? It's the weirdest thing. He flinches every time I'm around him. <laughs> and he continually refuses the offer of my free zip drives. So, I mean, how's, how's Snowden uh, viewed in uh, America now, John? He's, uh, you know, somewhere, I guess, well, between... Uh, by a few people as a hero and by a lot of people as a traitor, Andy, right. who should be, uh, you know, strung up. Okay. Old fashioned style. Like a cross between Lee Harvey Oswald, Trotsky, and France. Pretty uh, <laughs> much. I guess he had a whistle to blow, John, and he's, uh, he's tooted it. Mm -hmm. That whistle actually turned out to be a f***ing great ocean liner's foghorn, and the tune that it has played has been uh, the police's 1983 smash hit stalker pop classic, Every Breath You Take, and every move <laughs> Europe has made, America has been watching it. <laughs> every conversation taped, every email scanned, every stool passed has been analysed somewhere in a laboratory in Langley by some extremely demotivated CIA operatives who have dreamed dreamed of assassinating inconveniently elected Latin American nutjobs, but are instead sifting through shit for no reason. There ain't no reason things are this way It's how they always been and they intend to stay I can't explain why we live this way We do it every day Preachers on the podium speaking of saints Prophets on the sidewalk begging for change Old ladies laughing from the fire escape the NSA's insatiable appetite for spying is wreaking havoc on U.S. foreign policy. From Mexico and Brazil to France and Germany and now to Spain, the revelation that Uncle Sam is international big brother is not making us any friends. Looks like the NSA has been peering into Angela Merkel's cell phone for over a decade now, and the NSA recently gobbled up 60 million phone calls in just one month in Spain. Our allies are understandably upset, and you should be too, since the NSA is gobbling up all our phone calls and keystrokes as well. Maybe something good can come out of all of this. Maybe Congress will finally impose meaningful restrictions on the NSA's spying activities. It would be nice if it required that there be some individualized evidence for tracking someone, whether here or abroad. And another start would be for all of us to respect and guard our privacy with a little more vigor. The companies are using your personal information for marketing purposes, and the NSA is using it for surveillance purposes. As the saying goes on the Internet these days, if you're getting something for free, you're the product. 
I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. So the NSA is in a little bit of trouble in Congress. Uh, they've lost a lot of allies. And now Dianne Feinstein might be among them. And if they lose her, well, they're in a lot of trouble. She's part of the people who actually created this Frankenstein in the first place. At every step along the way, she enabled them, enabled them, enabled them, and said everything was necessary. Now, I'm going to get to her in a second. But first, let me show you the rebellion within the Congress against this. Now, all the spying that the NSA is doing. Uh, the USA Freedom Act is something that has been proposed. And it's backed by a lot of people on both sides. I'll get to that list in a second as well. But let me tell you what it does. It strengthens prohibitions against uh, targeting communications of Americans. So that's great. Okay, And the Hill explains this. Uh, it would require the government to be uh, more aggressively delete information accidentally collected on Americans. That's great, because one of the things they were doing is they were keeping the information forever. And then if they decided to target you later, they, well, as the head of the NSA said, we can go back and find that info on you. Okay, that was scary. They're going to try to get rid of that. I mean, these are this, remember, like, people are so mental about a gun registry. We can't have a gun registry. Well, we would have a registry of our most private information stored forever. So this bill would get rid of that. And then uh, it would create a special advocate's office uh, tasked with arguing in favor of stronger privacy protections in front of the FISA court. So that advocate for be, would be for us normally. The just government goes in front of the FISA court and says, all right, I want to get their information in the FISA court almost every time rubber stamps and says go on because there's no advocate for us. This bill would create that. So this bill is really, really strong. It's very good. It would tell the attorney general to disclose significant court decisions related to interpretation of the law because right now we literally have secret law in America. They make decisions. They declare that something is law, but they don't declare it to the public. They just declare it to themselves. In a democracy, that's outrageous. This bill would fix it. And finally, companies like Google, Microsoft, Facebook, etc., would have to reveal more statistics about the information that they turned over to the government. So very strong. Now, uh, what's really positive about it, look, is how uh, bipartisan it is. So look at this list. Senator Patrick Leahy, uh, Democrat from Vermont. James Sensenbrenner, Republican from Wisconsin. Mike Lee, very conservative out of Utah. He's the one that led the government shutdown with Ted Cruz. Dick Durbin, progressive from Illinois. Dean Heller, conservative from Nevada. Elizabeth Warren, progressive from Massachusetts. John Conyers, definitely a progressive from Michigan. Justin Amash, Tea Party conservative from Michigan, also wanted the government shutdown. Zoe Lofgren, progressive from California. Daryl Issa, very conservative Republican from California. So... It is very, very rare that you see a group like this together. But wait, we're not done. It's not just these bipartisan uh, congressmen and senators. It's also bipartisan group of organizations going to support what is called the USA Freedom Act. You know we're in good shape because usually when something's called the USA Freedom Act, it's going to pass. <laughs> okay, so we got the framing on our side on this. We got a lot of conservatives on our side on this, and these groups.
the National Rifle Association. Yes, the NRA in this case is not being hypocritical. They're saying we're against the gun registry and we're against this registry. Okay, so I literally cannot remember the last time I agreed with the NRA. So in this case, the NRA is on the right side. Then you got the Center for Democracy and Technology and also the Constitution Project. So progressive groups, conservative groups getting together. Now, a month ago, Diane Feinstein, who had been protecting the NSA all along, said, nope, not buying it. She said, I will do everything I can to prevent this phone data program from being canceled. But something just changed. And Diane Feinstein said very recently that she, quote, totally opposed to gathering intelligence on foreign leaders. Uh-oh, SpaghettiOs. So that's a real problem for the NSA because that is their top ally, certainly in the Democratic Party, maybe in all of government, saying, hey, you know what? You've gone too far. For whatever reason, she was totally fine on spying on Americans, but she did not like spying on foreign leaders. And I figured out why today, by the way. Because yesterday it was gnawing at me. I'm like, this thing about Europe and spying on Europeans and foreign leaders, it's going to cause a bigger problem than anything before. I had that gun instinct, and today I figured out why. It's because foreign leaders are in the club. You can do anything you like to the citizens. They're not in the club, right? But people like Angela Merkel, well, Diane Feinstein knows her. She's a powerful person. They've eaten dinner before, I imagine. They've been on the same cocktail circuit. You can't do that to the powerful. They're in the club. So now Diane Feinstein is not happy. And an NSA official speaking to foreign policy says, we're really screwed now. You know things are bad when the few friends you've got disappear without a trace in the dead of night and leave no forwarding address. God, I hope he's right. So it turns out if Feinstein has left the building, then we might actually win. Don't get too excited here because they got to pass the law. Passing it is hard. I don't think Feinstein's got her own watered-down version of the bill, which actually goes back and makes all the illegal things they did retroactively legal, but puts a couple of constraints on it. It's nonsense. That also isn't going to pass, okay? So the bad guys aren't going to win, and now Feinstein's not sure she wants to do it, right? She might still be in favor of that bill, but overall, she's having qualms about supporting the NSA unilaterally as she has before. Now, our version, the good bill, it might not pass either, but at least it's got a fighting chance now, and the game is afoot. Now we got a real contest. And now the NSA is turning on Feinstein. And here's a senior congressional aide saying, It's an absolute joke to think she hasn't been reading the signals intelligence intercepts as chairman of Senate Intelligence for years. So this is someone in favor of surveillance saying, Oh yeah, Feinstein is a joke. She knew about it all along. They've turned on each other. Now here's another quote. Bottom line question is, where was the Senate Intelligence Committee when it came to their oversight of these programs? And what were they being told about the NSA? By the NSA, I should say. Because if they didn't know about the surveillance, that would imply they were being lied to. We got massive internal dissension on the pro-surveillance side. Basically saying, either Feinstein was lied to, and that's why she's really mad, or she was told the truth, and now she's lying about it to cover her own ass. Either way, that's good news for people who are not in favor of this surveillance state. They're running for the hills. They're in tatters. We're charging ahead. 
Look, it's I rolling back the power of the government is spying on all of our lives seemed like an extraordinarily difficult thing to do when this news first broke. But all of a sudden, we're surging and we got a chance. I'm calling about your question of um, relating legislation and culture. You started out with an example of uh, population control, so I think that was a bad example, though, because uh, you know you, you even mentioned about you know condom use and stuff, and and it's not like you're talking about NGOs going in there and uh, giving you know trying to influence people to use condoms. I think it's a bad example because um, there's no legislation really involved. You know, you're really talking about like organizations trying to do this uh, without any real laws. You know, unless you were thinking that in some instances there's laws passed like there was in China or something. I think that you know, a lot of times people talk about culture as if it's the impediment. You know, like, like we can't get over this culture of uh, like say uh, sexism in the workplace or something. I think that legislation can drive culture just like culture can drive legislation. I mean, if you build it, you know, they will come, that kind of concept. I think, uh, like, for example, uh, bicycling. I mean, I think if you build an infrastructure that uh, respects bicyclists uh, and pedestrians, for example, I think that the culture in the, you know, in the public uh, will change. It will, it will adjust itself accordingly. Too often, I think people look at culture as a thing that, that will stop us from making progress. And I think that people we, we need to realize that uh, you know you can do the right thing and make make rules to govern yourselves, and uh, culture will shift. Look at look at smoking in, in, the, in the workplace. Doctors used to smoke uh, when you go to have a doctor visit, and that's not done anymore. You could have attributed that to culture and said, "Oh, you know, we'll never get over this culture." The culture wasn't what drove the legislation. It was legislation that changed the culture made it unacceptable so i'm not sure where 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 you were actually going with this you said you're going to have some more examples and let us know what you're thinking so i'm looking forward to hearing that okay thanks bye thanks for listening everyone thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line if you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show the number to dial is 202-999-3991 uh, so I'm, I'm following up on the conversation i started in the last episode and, and sort of responding to the, the caller that we just heard from and it's one of those interesting situations where i agree with essentially everything he said even when he was disagreeing with me and that's just because in in the last episode i sort of made the clumsy a mistake of using the word legislation and the word policy sort of interchangeably. So I, I, I referred to legislation when what I really meant was policy. Policy, and you know, when we talk about politics and in the context of this show, usually means legislation. But as he was referring to, you know, NGOs can have policies that they pursue, you know, if, if you're, uh, you know, and then when you get, as I said, the, the delicate interplay between culture and policy could go like this, you know, if, if your friend has a culture of not wanting to work and only liking to have fun, then you could create the policy of convincing your friend that whitewashing the fence that you're working on is really fun, in which case 
that will sound good to him and he will adopt uh, you know, your policy enthusiastically and help you whitewash the fence. So just a you know quick example. But all of this started because uh, an Australian listener of the show uh, sent me a like a 30-minute short, uh, like a mini documentary done uh, from an Australian point of view with an Australian host, but looking at American minimum wage and and especially in the service sector. And so so the the show sort of looks at how our system works, the fact that service workers are often paid, you know, in the like $2 and 15 cents an hour range, something like that, meaning that they are totally dependent on tips to, you know, for their livelihood, that that's literally their wages are their tips. And so they're dependent on the customers rather than on the business owners. And sort of towards the end of the, the little documentary, he, the host sits down a little panel of American service workers and says, so, you know, hey, what would you think if I told you that in Australia, the minimum wage is not only $15 an hour, but that applies to service workers as well? And all of them responded, I would like to move to Australia, please. And so to be clear, I'm totally in favor of that. I would love a system like that. But what it got me thinking about is that it's not quite that simple because the culture of tipping is very different between America and European or, or uh, Australian cultures. And so in those other places, tipping is really not seen as the norm. It's, you know, you can do it a little bit. It's really not expected. Um, but if you do tip, it's definitely not in the 15 or 20% range uh, like it is in America. And so, you know, my my girlfriend used to be a waitress. My brother used to be a waiter. I've talked with both of them in the in the past few days and got some interesting feedback. And uh, so, my girlfriend Amanda was talking about how you know in, in Europe, the culture of be, uh, of service work is much different. Whereas here, people might you know be waiters like during the summer when they're home from college. In Europe, it's much more of a, a, sort of a could be thought of as a more prestigious job to have where, you know, a lot more training is required and, and it's not thought of as like a lowly position where, you know, I don't know, like I kind of get this and Sean, uh, my brother chimed in on this, on, on this side saying that he thinks that the, the culture of tipping in America actually leads not to better service as is theoretically the idea, but actually leads to worse treatment of the service staff, you know, because the people are thinking like, hey, I'm going to, you know, I have the power to hold my tips over your head. I'm also going to treat you like shit in the meantime. And, you know, so I don't have any personal experience with that. And I always treat service people well, or I try to, um, you know, but, but Sean definitely experienced uh, plenty of that in, in his time. And I think most service uh, workers would say that they've uh, enjoyed a certain uh, degree of that treatment as well. And so, you know, what it comes down to is just recognizing that, like, I totally agree with the caller who said that not only does culture drive policy, but policy also drives culture. And that's sort of exactly my point. And all I'm saying, I don't have like a huge, like, aha moment here that I'm leading to. But the point is just to recognize that both of those elements are in play. And, you know, and so when you're creating policy, just recognize that you can either 
work with the culture that is already there or try to change the culture. But if you are trying to change the culture, you have to recognize that that's what, that's what you're doing and sort of, uh, you know, tailor your messaging to fit that, to make, make a good argument for why the culture should be changed. Now, the argument that I think, uh, that would, it works on me anyways, the argument that would say that we should change our tipping culture away from, you know, the, the customers get to hold their tips over the heads of the service staff, which they are totally dependent on. You know, the tips are not like a bonus that they get. It's absolutely the bread and butter that they live on. What you know, the argument that works for me is to recognize that the current system we have shifts the risk from the business owners to the employees themselves for uh, slow business days. So, you know, clearly nobody wins when business is slow at a restaurant. No one makes a lot of money when business is slow. But with our current system, the risk for that is laid more squarely on the shoulders of the staff rather than the owner because the owner can have a slow day and not make much money. But on the other hand, they don't have to pay their staff hardly anything for their time for being there. And the staffs are the ones who are almost certainly going to be more in need of that money and less able to shoulder that risk themselves. Whereas in the European and Australian cultures where the service staff simply get an hourly wage that is something that they can live on and they aren't dependent on the tips. If it's a slow day, then they at least get paid for their time or they are sent home so that they you know, can do something else with their lives. So like I said, I'm sure this is just one of many, many, many examples where policy drives culture and the reverse. And I just thought it'd be interesting to bring up the fact that that happens because it's not something that I really hear talked about almost ever. So if you have thoughts, chime in 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and wonder